Hey folks, Jared here. Walker Mills is your host today, and he's got John Bradford and Oli Swarza discussing lightning carriers in the Pacific. We are still looking for audio editors to join our team, so if you're interested, please email us at ccontrol at simsec.org with your resume. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec Podcast Network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Welcome back aboard the Sea Control podcast from the Center for International Maritime Security. I'm your host today, Walker Mills. Today we're talking with John Bradford and Dr. Oli Swarsa about their recent essay in War on the Rocks, Lightning Carriers Could Be the Lightweights in the Asian War. John is a senior fellow in the Maritime Security Program at the S. Roger Rottenham School of International Studies and a former commander in the U.S. Navy. Ollie is an assistant professor at the Rabdin Academy in the United Arab Emirates. John, welcome aboard. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks. As you sort of mentioned, I'm a senior fellow at the, uh, the Roger Rottenham School of International Studies here in Singapore. Uh, before that, I did 23 years as an active duty SWO. That was almost all Asia Pacific time. Uh, eight sea tours based out of Japan. My other sea tour, my other overseas tours were in Southeast Asia, uh, and in fact, my only CONUS tours were back to back Pentagon tours where I was doing Asia Pacific work. Uh, first in OPNAV N52, uh, and then OSD policy. Uh, so I've been a full time researcher for just over a year now, and and I'm really enjoying it. Ollie, over to you. Same question. Thank you, Walker. Um, I am currently an assistant professor at the Rapidan Academy in Abu Dhabi, UAE, where I teach subjects like uh, maritime security, defense policy, and modern warfare. And before joining Rapidan, I was a research fellow at uh, the RSIS in Singapore, where John and I started to put in together our thoughts uh, on this article. And uh, education-wise, I have PhD from the City University of Hong Kong, Master's uh, from SOAS in the University of London, and BA from Estonia. And um, I have a defense industry background as well, which is uh, something I try to use to my benefit a lot in my research as well. And uh, quickly about some research interests. So I try to focus a lot on smaller powers, which is rather natural for me coming from Finland. And uh, security and defense with strong focus on especially on air and naval warfare, as well as maritime security. We're happy to have you both. Welcome aboard. Before we start, I'd like to remind our listeners that the opinions presented here are solely our own and, and should not be taken as representative of any of the institutions that we're associated with. So to start out, uh, John, can you kind of define what a, a lightning carrier is for us? How would you define it? For the article that Ali and I wrote, we kept it very simple. Uh, it's simply uh, a ship which can carry and launch and operate F-35 Bravo Lightning aircraft. Um, I know that in U.S. doctrine, it's meant different things at different times. Uh, and rather getting that debate, we just wanted a, a sort of a fairly catchy uh, term that we could uh, plant in the thesis statement and carry through throughout the article. Ali, anything, anything you want to add to that definition? Uh, not so much in terms of the essay we wrote, but um, just want to highlight the uh, challenge really of uh, 
defining lightning carriers, as many of these uh, so-called lightning carriers are rather retrofitted or repurposed uh, ships from other roles like amphibious ships and other like the uh, Queen Elizabeth class, which we also include in this article uh, as a representative of a, of a lightning carrier is a uh, purpose-built for operating uh, aircraft. So this is rather a light aircraft carrier. So this is just to highlight how different these uh, different ships are from one another and how they have been either purpose or purpose-built or repurposed for these roles and missions. Can you tell us who's building them? And, and you talk about this some in your article, but what countries have them and, and what countries are kind of working on them, these lightning carriers? Okay, so there are four countries operating the lightning carriers today. And these countries are the United States, of course, with the uh, America class, Japan with the Izumo class, and UK with Queen Elizabeth class. And uh, something that is not in our article, but I want to also mention just to make sure that we cover all the countries that are currently using these type of ships. So Italy is the most recent um, uh, country also operating now uh, F-35Bs from the ITS Cavour ship. And moreover, then South Korea is looking to acquire light carriers as well. And this is uh, um, out of the current and future lightning carrier operators, UK and South Korea are those a uh, little bit different in that they have or are adopting those purpose-built light carriers that I was talking about earlier. And all the others like US, Japan, and Italy are retrofitting or repurposing existing ships to this purpose or adding to their current missions or taskings. And it is also worth mentioning, I guess, that uh, there are others in Asia who have also studied uh, the possibility of either repurposing or acquiring lightning carriers. And these include Australia and Singapore. And we should also not forget uh, China, of course, which has also studied these concepts and some unofficial or Official computer renderings have come out already, demonstrating some future interest in the class. John, do you have anything you want to add there? The one thing I would add is just to point out that both the Japanese and the Italian uh, abilities or capabilities in this area are really nascent. Um, Our article came out in October. Uh, The impetus to get it published was the first deck landing of an F-35 Bravo on board Izumo. Uh, and it was just a few weeks after we published it that the first F-35 Bravo uh, touched down on the Italian carrier. So the U.S. and the U.K. both have a FOC capability that's already done a full deployment or more. Uh, Japan and Italy are both in the process of building their capability, which is sort of the first flight ops. Um, and then the ROK's capability uh, is the one which has been planned and budgeted, but is still in a precarious position where it could easily be uh, canceled or, or retooled in a new direction. And John, do you think that that some of these countries are going to use or, or trying to use the lightning carrier concept as kind of a stepping stone to a, a full-size carrier or a, or a larger vessel, thinking specifically here about Japan, Korea, and, and the United Kingdom, which obviously the UK's uh, lightning carrier is a little bit larger? So generally speaking, I would say no. I think this kind of depends on how you define it. Um, 
you know, in my mind, and Ali has something different to say about this because I know he he classifies things and he makes sense of it a little bit differently than me. Uh, but to me, uh, the the Queen Elizabeth is a full size carrier, uh, and you know, it's about sixty five thousand tons, carries about two dozen aircraft, uh, and the Nimitz and the four classes are supercarriers, uh, a term which I don't think Ali likes very much. Um, but you're talking fifty percent bigger, um, and then you know, the rest of these vessels are all in the that exist or being planned right now or in the 20,000 to 45,000 ton range. Um, I don't see any of these nations leapfrogging up bigger, uh, except maybe Japan. Um, but even there, it would, it would be an incremental change. So uh, they're converting Izumo and Kaga uh, to become lightning carriers. Uh, that won't be complete for some years. Uh, after that, I could see them building a purpose you know, a, a ground up uh, aircraft carrier capability. And, and I think it might be a bit bigger, uh, maybe as big as Queen Elizabeth, um, but that's speculatory. Um, and my, my instinct says that, you know, that there's no interest in resourcing a, an American style supercarrier. Ollie, so do you, would you disagree with any of that or classify it somewhat differently? Uh, no, not really so much uh, classifying it so much differently. This just for me personally, um, understanding a little bit more or putting a little bit more flexibility in our definition. So for me, the supercarriers, as uh, John used the term, is rather the exception here, that basically all the others than uh, Americans are using carriers that for me are already full-sized carriers, like the ones that uh, the Brits, uh, Chinese, Indians, Russians are using, and French, of course, having a nuclear-powered carrier. So these are significantly smaller, of course, than the American supercarriers. But if, uh, like I said, that we understand that the supercarriers are rather the exception here, then if we look from this perspective, then it is possible, certainly, that either Japan or Korea could go that way. But uh, then to be very realistic, manpower challenges are very real. Budgetary problems are very real. There's always competing interests. And I don't frankly believe that country like Japan, for example, could stomach a full-sized aircraft carrier. So there are a lot of uh, challenges and uh, probably political uh, objections to really uh, operate bigger aircraft carriers. I'd just like to add to that, that I think a lot of our article points out that these carriers, we're calling them lightning carriers, are a navalist vision, uh, and they bring a tremendous amount of statecraft, and they bring some capability, um, but that there's some limitations there, and there's some questions whether or not they're really smart investments of resources. And if you go larger, all it does is uh, exaggerate those same issues. Uh, you only get a little bit more bang for your buck, uh, in the, especially in the strategic environment of those countries. Um, and then on the flip side, your costs skyrocket, uh, your vulnerabilities to various different systems uh, become even more acute, et cetera. John, I want to kind of follow up on that and, and ask how much, how different is it now that we've got the F-35 that we can put on these platforms instead of the, the Harrier, the Aviate B, right? Because some of these, these short takeoff aircraft are not necessarily new. Um, they've been around for a while. The Marine Corps has been flying them off of um, amphibious ships for a while, as of the Italians, I think the Spanish too. So 
is it a, does the F-35 make it a, a really different platform um, or is this more of an incremental change in, in capability for these type of uh, uh, vessels? Uh, well, I'm going to let Ollie do most of the talking on that because he's our air power specialist. Um, you know, but I just point out that the AV-8 Bravo is a, is a very old aircraft. Uh, it's been phased out of most of these navies. Uh, the UK stopped flying it a decade ago. Um, and so, you know, going to the F-35 is, you might be able to call it an increment, but the increment is huge. I mean, you're talking a, a jump of a couple generations of aircraft, essentially. Ali? Yeah, thanks. Uh, um, so certainly F-35 can do much more than the Harrier. So Harriers basically, they have really served and matured well in service, but they're rapidly, of course, becoming irrelevant in modern battlefield and in particular against any adversaries that have capable anti-air or air capabilities of their own. So the type is simply not survivable anymore in any high-end environment. And not least because, of course, of the uh, sensor and systems uh, obsolescence issues and very challenging uh, maintenance issues that those jump jets have. But when we look at the F-35B, then um, it's really not incremental uh, change. It is really a significant step change in comparison to the Harriers. So what it provides for any warfighter is really a huge step change. So especially because of its low observable characteristics, um, highly advanced and secretive even electronic warfare and attack capabilities. And um, one of the most important elements as well is the unrivaled situational awareness that the aircraft can build. So with all of that in mind, the lightnings will offer a survivable, like really actually a survivable platform that will on its own already pose a significant challenge to any adversary, even in smaller numbers. So the F-35B or the Bravo can act as um, an effective fleet defense platform utilizing its low observability of stealth and long range sensors, as well as the data sharing functions. And that really ensures that the type can take on almost any currently available combat aircraft uh, that the potential adversaries might possess, and especially on uh, their own aircraft carriers. In the air-to-ground domain, on the other hand, the type can also effectively escort itself. Um, the system can also gather huge amounts of intelligence, electronic intelligence, uh, signals intelligence, and share it effectively. And that's the really critical point here as well. So it is not just uh, F-35 as a system, but, it's, but it really is a system of system of systems. That's really the reality of the uh, modern aircraft like F-35. And then kind of moving on from, from some of the more hardware questions, um, John, how do we think that these are going to be used? I mean, we have a couple of different countries with somewhat different, uh, I would think, um, national policies and, and objectives um, acquiring the same types of capabilities. How do we think that these are going to be employed in, in the Pacific? Um, and, you know, it might make sense to go kind of country by country for this one. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, that one of the issues out there is that countries or naval officers or analysts that are familiar with the character 
you know, the use of a carrier in their own national context sort of assumes that others will use them in the same way. Um, and I think that if you look at the three different, you know, I'll use the UK, the US and Japan as examples in this region and how they're, they're all poised to use them very differently. Uh, you know, for the United States, uh, you know, the America is an amphib, uh, and by doctrine and by design, by fleet design, it's supposed to be the air element, you know, the primary air element of an, of an ARG or an expeditionary strike group, um, and be able to operate independently in that function. Uh, and I think that uh, in most complex warfare scenarios, that's exactly what it would do. Um, but if you look at how we used America in theater in 2020, uh, it was very different. Um, it was two things. Uh, it was a major show, uh, a major defense diplomat that showed the flag at events like Cobra Gold 2020. Um, and it was used as a supplemental carrier when the super carriers uh, were not available. We see this early in the year. Uh, Reagan was in maintenance and the Theodore Roosevelt was out in the region uh, to provide presence. Uh, but Theodore Roosevelt uh, famously became tied up in Guam with their COVID situation. Uh, and so America was out and about uh, reassuring allies, taking part in exercises, uh, doing things like a show of force in the West Kapala incident uh, in the South China Sea. Um, and then later in this later in the year, when uh, Ronald Reagan was uh, redeployed out of the east, out of the Western Pacific, out of East Asia to cover the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, I can only imagine that that decision was made easier by the fact that America was available uh, and by the fact that uh, the UK Queen Elizabeth was on her way, um, so that the gap of a you know of missing the FDNF supercarrier was covered down by these other assets. So I think that's what we're going to see more of with the United States. Uh, for the UK, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, for the UK, the carrier represents two things. Um, for one, it is a core capability uh, to implement uh, and demonstrate the strength of post-Brexit global Britain. Uh, and in particular, with this recent deployment, and we hear there are more deployments to come, uh, a core element to demonstrate uh, the UK's Indo-Pacific tilt. Um, so it's no surprise that the Queen Elizabeth's basic maiden deployment uh, was to this region, uh, and they jammed, packed that deployment with everything they could. It went as far as Guam and Japan. Uh, the carrier and its escorts operated with 44 different countries uh, while they were while they're out on their deployment. Um, so in this way, it's a demonstration of the United Kingdom as a global power. Um, it's an independent ability to make relationships uh, and forge defense partnerships. Um, but at the same time, and this is the second thing it does, is it is a supplement to U.S. combat power. Uh, a huge part of the British strategy is to line up with the United States and uh, offer itself as the United States' best friend. Uh, and they're taking that friendship beyond the Middle East and Europe global right now. Um, so, you know, in that the uh, Queen Elizabeth was able to sort of cover down uh, in the Western Pacific while Ronald Reagan went to uh, Afghanistan, you may see more of that again in the future. Uh, now, Japan would be very, very different. 
Japan does not have uh, an ambition to be a global maritime power uh, or to use its navy to strengthen its global economic position. Uh, you'll see these uh, lightning carriers, the Zumo Nakaga, uh, doing two things. Uh, in peacetime, they'll be training up and preparing for uh, combat contingencies in Northeast Asia, uh, and they'll probably join the rotation of flat decks uh, that goes on the so-called Indo-Pacific deployment. Uh, every year, they about three or four months, they send one of their large ships, uh, traditionally Izumo, uh, Kaga, Issei, et cetera, uh, as far as India, uh, and they do a lot of engagements and uh, exercises in, with Southeast Asian and South Asian partners. Um, I think they'll continue to do that, and these ships will just fall into that rotation. And in a combat scenario, uh, you don't, we don't foresee uh, Japanese carriers sailing the world uh, to augment United States strike operations or to support United States operations ashore. Uh, but you see them as mobile, uh, and because of their mobility, therefore resilient uh, airfields, uh, that can take part in the direct defense of Japan, especially the Japanese Southwest Islands uh, and the contested zone with the People's Republic of China. Following up, Ollie, I wanted to ask about um, kind of threats to these kind of carriers. So I think anyone that's been uh, paying attention to kind of naval news and naval development over the last few years have probably noticed the, uh, the slew of arguments arguing that the carrier might be um, obsolete or under threat, particularly from uh, land and uh, air and, and ship-based uh, long-range missiles um, and, and what we might call uh, anti-access aerial denial um, type technology. How do we, how should we think about those arguments in the context of lightning carriers? Are they more vulnerable or less vulnerable than say the, the super carriers, uh, if we want to use that term that the United States is, is using? Yeah, uh, this is very good, but always also a very difficult, difficult question since we really don't know how those weapons would perform in real world. And that's for me always the uh, big question that how do, you, how do these things perform in real world? And the same, of course, goes for any possible soft kill and hard kill defenses and how well these systems would operate how well those operating the, these systems would perform at that given point. Um, and nevertheless, there is a growing concern, of course, of the potential adversaries rapidly developing and expanding arsenals of different velocity and endgame trajectory weapons, ranging from anti-ship ballistic missiles to supersonic, even hypersonic missiles, and possibly even salvos of all of the above. So what we have to remember here is uh, that technologies uh, looking at offensive or defensive advantages are always a game of move and counter move. So uh, what, is, what is certainly true is that the United States uh, does not have the freedom of action it once had. And it has to factor in all these adversaries' high-end capability. But that said, it is doubtful that whether we can truly claim that this marks the end of the carrier era, as some is sometimes suggested. Advances in defensive technologies are also great. 
especially in emerging technologies and may yet level the playing field once more. So what can be said is also that the, this is the, the pace of modern and future naval combat will be rapidly pushing our human ability to sense, decide uh, the most suitable course of action and react to these uh, threats is absolutely pushed to the limit. So that is one reality behind this. And then uh, my, as my last point, I would just highlight that this, this is part of the overall debate that whether we indeed focus and concentrate a lot of power on a single uh, super carrier strike group with multiple ships uh, creating layers of defenses against these modern threats, or we distribute uh, the assets into smaller groups around perhaps a single supercarrier and multiple lightning carriers, for instance. Uh, both arguments have a lot of uh, good points, but also, of course, a lot of issues that would be argued against. So coming from a very uh, technological background, uh, a very technical background, I don't want to really give answer for yes or no, either or, because uh, you, as you understand, as our listeners would understand also, it really depends on the only thing that we can see is uh, in any possible future fight, who's right. <laughs> I mean, even in my own kind of experience, I've, I've noticed of, of writing and, and, and podcasting, I've noticed that it's, it's a touchy issue. Um, and sometimes with active duty folks in the, in the U.S. Navy, they actually don't really want to weigh in and, and it can become almost kind of a personal or, or political issue. John, do you have anything that you want to add? Yeah, I actually think this is one of the most interesting questions when you're looking at global trends uh, in naval shipbuilding. So we have this debate in the United States, uh, and the debate involves a very mature and prove uh, it's a very mature carrier community that has proven itself valuable uh, for decades, right? For nearly a century uh, since World War II. Yet we have this debate whether or not uh, investments should continue on single high cost platforms. Now, if you look at these other countries from a purely warfare standpoint, uh, their carriers are going to be even more vulnerable because they don't uh, benefit from the robust defense in depth, including robust electronic warfare and other sophisticated capabilities that the United States brings to a battle group to defend its carrier. So, you know, from a pure shooting war, kinetic warfare kind of picture, you think that these are actually probably worse investments for them. Uh, now, I think that's debatable. Some people would say that's not true, but I kind of think that's the way that the overall thinking would lean. Yet, you see countries spending a lot of money, not just building new ships, but either constituting for the first time or reconstituting uh, naval carrier aviation wings uh, or capabilities within their uh, within their air forces to operate from ships. So they're either developing for the first time, like Japan, or they're uh, brushing off uh, doctrine that they haven't used for some time. So it's a huge investment, um, and you know I, all I can say is that it certainly reflects a triumph of navalism. Uh, it. It reflects a triumph in the way of thinking that says a strong and visibly strong Navy is important 
uh, to the strategic future of countries. Um, and it may be that those sort of political leanings and those sort of statements um, are overshadowing a debate about the combat utility of these ships, uh, which remains, as Ali said, somewhat unresolved. And so I want to follow up. You you guys actually wrote in your article that should a war break out, and this, sorry, this is the quote, should a war break out in and around the confined waters of the East China Sea and the Sea of Japan, lightning carriers were off, will offer a marginal additional capability. Um, so why is it that you guys think that these don't actually bring that much um, additional combat capability or bring only marginal combat capability to these fleets? Um, and do you think that you could get a bigger bang for your buck by for these countries like Japan or South Korea by investing in other capabilities? Yeah, I'll be brief and to the point with this one. So I'll go first. Um, I think the key word there is marginal. I mean, certainly no war planner is going to scoff at the idea that they can have an additional aircraft carrier laden with that 35 Bravo aircraft. Um, but when you're looking at uh, a dozen, at most two dozen aircraft uh, on a ship that probably isn't survivable once it's located and targeted, um, it's a huge investment for a relatively low sortie generation rate. Um, whereas we kind of point out, and Ollie's the expert on this, uh, that you take those resources, you can build much more resiliency uh, ashore uh, and build uh, hardened airfields or more resilient airfields that can produce a lot more firepower. And over to Ollie, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, just uh, quickly, um, two points. I think that the this is a area where me and Sean probably uh, differ most on this, but uh, it's it's then up to another podcast episode to discuss it in more detail that whether they offer any combat value really. But when we really look at the uh, even a flight or two of F-35 Bravos coming from these lightning carriers, so they are that sort of significant capability that even on of their own and even as a one or two flights of those aircraft already offer so significant threat to any adversary that it needs to be taken into account. So that is something to uh, really bear in mind that this is not really Harrier carrier. So this this is the uh, point that I would like to make here. The second issue is that what John already raised is that, especially when we talk about um, Japan, so the Japanese southwestern islands, the Rikyu island chain, offers a big number of airfields of different sizes. In my own research, I have found some 24 runways that are usable by F-35Bs as well as A's. So that means that there are a lot of runways available for F-35s to go into the fight. And again, these are low observable aircraft that can be also uh, distributed to a high no big number of smaller airfields. Uh, those runways are not very um, high value targets in the sense, this sounds now a little bit controversial. What I mean by this is that they are not same as Cadena Air Base. These are small ones that can also be quickly um, uh, uh, re rebuilt or if they're damaged they can be quickly repaired 
And the aircraft can all the time be switching their locations. When they take off from one um, runway, they can be landing to another one. And also, unlike in many of the readings that you can find on this topic, that uh, these kind of smaller small footprint um, air bases do not, or locations rather, don't require that level of air defenses as, say, Cadena, as we were talking about earlier. So the, uh, for, uh, the, the uh, resources that are required for operating like this in the distributed manner is significantly less in my own research in comparison to either operating uh, several lightning carriers operating from uh, a very uh, big, hardened airbase like the Cadena. And kind of as a as a final question, I want to zoom out um, a little bit. And instead of talking specific capabilities and, and platforms, do you think that these? What do you think these carriers or these investments by by countries in the region mean regionally? Are we watching a new uh, arms race, a new naval arms race unfold in Asia. And I know there's also been a little bit of recent commentary also in uh, War on the Rocks about that. Um, I'll ask you, John, and, and then Oli. Actually, Oli, if you don't mind, you want to take that one first? Sure. So this is also, of course, a very good question and frankly, uh, quite delicate one as well. So arms race is such a strong expression which can easily evoke a lot of misplaced uh, fears or unsupported narratives as well. In Asia, for instance, prestige carries a significant role as well. And very often this is also behind a lot of these uh, issues. Um, In many instances, like in Korea, for example, the carrier debate is also part of the country's debate about its own naval ambitions uh, and different directions which navalists want to take it to. In the UK's case, like John also alluded to before, um, the carriers are part of London's ambitions to recreate UK's maritime power once more. I would rather speak of um, trends in capability development rather than arms races in, in this case. Yeah, I 100% uh, agree with all of that. Uh, I think that it's not helpful to talk about arms races unless you're prepared to have a long conversation about the specifics of arms races uh, and what you mean by that and and what the risks you see with that are because the terms just carry uh, a lot of connotations and a lot of baggage uh, that is only useful if you want to get into that baggage. Um, But I do want to kind of highlight two things. Um, One is these carriers are a symptom of a huge investment that the Indo-Pacific is making in defense. Um, And in some ways, they represent uh, next generation capabilities that will be very useful. Uh, And in other ways, uh, they do, in fact, represent uh, more political statements. Uh, And those are political statements about national identity Uh, And those are political statements about how countries and or navies want to be seen. Um, But if I can kind of just close with some of those points, you know, some some data to back up my point that there is huge investments in the region. If you look at the defense budget growth in 2021, everybody's on a different fiscal year. So this is not exactly temporarily uh, equivalent. 
But basically, in 2021, the PRC expanded their defense budget by at least 6.8%, maybe more when you include the hidden budget lines. Uh, The United States by 5%, Australia by over 4%, uh, and Japan by 3%, uh, with Japan talking about having an even bigger growth uh, in 2022. Um, So there is a region which is investing in defense capabilities, uh, and these carriers are really uh, high-profile symbols of that investment. So unfortunately, I think we're just about out of time for today. But before we go, um, I'd like to ask you both what you're working on um, and, and where, if anywhere, our listeners can find you online. Ollie, over to you first. Thank you. Um, I'm currently uh, doing quite a few research projects that relate uh, to Asia, indeed, despite my current location. So I still try to keep uh, one foot in in Asia. So I continue to look a lot of uh, topics related to uh, both naval and air warfare and the power rivalries in the Indo-Pacific. You can find me in uh, both Twitter and LinkedIn uh, by searching uh, by my name. So I used to be very active in Twitter as well, but uh, the current uh, teaching uh, is keeping me a little bit busy on that front, but I try to get back to it as soon as I can. Thank you. Same question to you, John. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, maybe it's most useful for me to just sort of mention a few projects that will be coming out in December 2021, uh, so that by the time this airs, people can grab the links. Uh, with CSIS, Asian Maritime Transparency Institute, I'm almost done with a series of articles Uh, that I wrote some of and edited the remainder about how Southeast Asian countries and the Quad conceptualize and define maritime security. So a little bit abstract, uh, but I think valuable to to more practical people as well. Uh, Also with CSIS, AMTI in the next week or so, uh, I should have a commentary coming out about the UK's tilt and how they plan to brace it using their Navy uh, in the Indo-Pacific. I think it's a fairly complimentary article to what we've just been discussing Uh, And then I have a pair of pieces uh, on uh, security uh, and maritime security in mainland Southeast Asia. Uh, Just earlier today, uh, I had an article that came out in the Air Force's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs about Thailand's maritime strategy. Um, And next week, the U.S. Institute for Peace uh, should be uh, launching a major report that I developed about security for the PRC's security force posture uh, in the lower Mekong, uh, the possibility of PRC bases, the cross-border uh, uh, policing that the PRC has been doing, and the uh, growth in PLA exercises in those countries over the last decade or so. Uh, so I'm definitely keeping busy, uh, trying to be as busy uh, in retirement as I was a F- as I was as an FTNF SWO. Awesome. Well, we'll try to grab some of those links and put them below the podcast, and uh, maybe we'll have to have you back. Looking forward to seeing those. Again, I'd like to thank my guests, John Bradford and Dr. Oli Swarsa, for joining us today to talk about their recent essay in War on the Rocks, Lightning Carriers Could Be Lightweights in an Asian War. Take care.